Welcome to Self-Compassionate Professor, a career wellness podcast for mid-career and recovering academics who want more. More meaning, balance, rest, joy, and more clarity. Our motto here is no regrets. So glad you're here. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 54. I'm Danielle Delamar, and here in Denver, we got some snow. How's it going in your world right now? Um, Things are cold, and we are cooped up, and there's not a lot of sun, and without sun in Denver, it feels really strange, (laughs) right? Because bright sun is like our normal. Um, so anyway, we're just having kind of a dark, cold day. Um, I don't know. It feels like kind of like a Sunday that you should bake cookies or something, um, make it feel a little cozier. Anyway, I had the pleasure of talking to Dr. Lauren Broyles on today's interview, and I have to say that she helped me to understand something I haven't been able to fully place. I haven't been able to fully put my finger on until now. So uh, let me just tell you what her interview brought up for me. After I had gone through my big career crisis and I was feeling lighter. <laughs> I had I'd gotten through a major illness. I had gotten through my burnout feelings. I was about to have a baby. I was calmer. I felt better. At that time, I started reading about work addiction because I started getting the sense that that's why I had gotten burned out. And I found a book called uh, Chain to the Desk, and it's by Brian E. Robinson. Anyway, at this time when I was feeling a lot better, I was calmer, I had gone to a coffee shop one morning just to read through this book and really journal and think about what had gone on in my life to put me in such a a frazzled and just a, a, a miserable sort of feeling state. And while I was at this coffee shop, just doing the thing I love to do, which is just deeply reading and writing and putting ideas together, a friend of mine had walked in and she was a colleague. And when I say she's a friend, she really was a friend. You know, I hung out with her um, outside of work as well. And she worked in another department. She was also tenure track faculty. She was like a year behind me. And she walked in and she's like, oh, Danielle, how's it going? I'm here to do a little work too. What's up? Da da da. Right. Just typical little conversation when you see somebody, you know, in a coffee shop. Anyway, we chatted and she asked me what I was up to and I showed her the book. I was like, I am really trying to explore the possibility that I was a work addict because I'm really concerned about where that led me. Um, And she just kind of paused, didn't say anything to what I had said about work addiction and changed the 
topic. And she's one of those people who's a very, very competent communicator, right? When you're with her, like everything always flows really well. And so she did it in this way that was really easy and flowy. And um, it didn't feel super awkward or anything, but I did feel the sense that I wasn't acknowledged. And I did feel the sense that I wanted to talk about something that I couldn't talk about. And I thought I had an opening to talk about it. And it turned out I didn't. Anyway, that feeling in that coffee shop that day always stuck with me. It was like this little empty space in my heart, <laughs> right? The space in my heart that that was sort of in need of connection, I needed to talk to somebody about this thing that I was feeling, about this work addiction that I was starting to suspect I had had. And that was four years ago. I think I have been craving a conversation like I had with Lauren on this podcast interview for that many years. That little place inside of me that felt weak and needed connection and needed to be acknowledged that need to really explore my work addiction with somebody else who'd also been feeling it was satisfied in this interview. And Lauren Broyles is not just somebody who had it, who has experienced it. She understands addiction at a level that I don't understand, right? She was an addiction researcher, and in this interview, she'll talk about how work addiction, she believes, is very much intertwined with other types of addictions. Anyway, this interview with Dr. Lauren Broyles is just dripping with wisdom. And I hope you can feel the same sense of acknowledgement and clarity and connection that I felt when I had this conversation and that I felt again when I listened to this interview again. All right, here's Lauren now. Hello, thank you for joining us today. I'm talking to Dr. Lauren Broyles, grant proposal writing consultant and trainer, and also the founder of a Facebook group called The Bigger Table, which you're going to hear more about here in a bit. Lauren, thank you so much for joining me. I'm so excited to talk about this stuff. Thank you, Danielle. I am too. You had uh, contacted me and said, I want to talk a little bit about the addiction stuff because I've heard you talk about it on the podcast and um, I just have a lot to say about it. And I guess I would like to start there. What What is it that um, sort of caught your eye and made you think, I need to I need to say something about this addiction stuff? Well, I guess for me, it is partially rooted in the fact that I'm a former addiction clinical and health services researcher. So it's always on my radar uh, professionally, but on a more personal level, which is what I think a lot of people don't know, I also identify as a woman in long-term recovery from alcohol use disorder, uh, just celebrated four years. And I also identify as a woman in recovery from academia. And a lot of people think that I'm being tongue in cheek or sort of snarky when I say that, but I really, really mean it. And I'm about five years out of uh, academia. My and, and for me, those two things that um, addiction to alcohol and then also addiction to work are inextricably tied together. And 
I feel, I know intellectually and, and more and more, the more that I share my story, the more I know that this is a pervasive problem in academia. And I think that we're getting more comfortable talking about mental health in academia, burnout in academia, mental health in grad students, but it often feels like addiction is the final taboo. And we know that addiction is increasing in women. We know it's increasing in mothers. And yet we're just not talking about it in the circles of of academia. Even though we talk about depression and anxiety, we know also that substance addiction goes along hand in hand with those conditions. So I'm trying to embrace opportunities to tell a little bit about my story, to go first, so to speak, just to help other women, other academics know that they're not alone, that they're not the only ones who have been engulfed by one or more of these um, these situations, which I think for a lot of people are is really tied to their professional identity too. Okay. This is so good um, for so many reasons. Um, I appreciate you just sort of stepping up and saying, this is important and it needs to be told. It's a story that needs to be told and I'm willing to be sort of the first one. And I know you've said that we talk about work addiction, you know, here and there on the podcast, but you haven't fully heard it really be talked about in a, in a real, real way. Um, and so I'm wondering about this link in your story between work addiction and alcohol addiction. I think you said to me that the alcohol addiction piece you identified much sooner than the work addiction piece. Um, and so I'm interested in how that worked out, but I'm also interested in how, in the end, you found them working together. Yeah, you know... One of the one of my favorite definitions of addiction is actually from a TED talk by an addiction therapist named Mandy Saligari, and she defines addiction as any uh, let's see repeated pattern of outsourcing your emotional process management of your emotional processes that mm. backfires, and I like that because to me it encompasses everything. It encompasses wine or a cookie or a slot machine or porn or your phone or work or whatever that you're this idea that you're outsourcing or delegating management of your emotional processes onto something else that works temporarily but then backfires so for me i'll start with the work addiction part because i actually think that it's the older addiction for me um you know it's both addiction to a substance and also addiction to a process. So for me, it was absolutely this addiction to the, to adrenaline, um, at a physiological level, you know, the, the racing and the, the busyness and the addiction to achievements and accolades and awards and grants and publications and titles. But then it's overlapping in the sense that it's an addiction to the process. So that pressure and that, that productivity. And for me as a kid who always did well in school and really loved learning, a lot of this for me was rooted in really deriving my worth and approval and identity by doing, 
So a lot of fear that I wasn't doing enough, um, just being immersed in a volume of activities, juggling so many plates at one time. And this kind of idea that being busy meant being or doing something important. I had a lot of difficulty delegating, even when I had staff or trainees. It's a lot of over planning, over organizing, being super focused and, and perfectionistic, um, and, and neglecting my family, neglecting my children who were young at the time, uh, they're teenagers now, and just seeing like family time or really anything outside of work as being an intrusion on my time and my mental space and my energy. And I have a lot of guilt about that now. And that's been a part of my, my healing and recovery has been those, those living amends, so to speak, but just a lot of uh, resentment as well at towards uh, like the higher ups um, feeling unappreciated and just thinking about work 24 seven um, it manifests as like insomnia, irritability, exhausting, exhaustion. And so in some ways I think about these dual addictions almost as being like the perfect speedball, so to speak. And the metaphor doesn't work perfectly, but you think about the, the addiction to the upper being the adrenaline, the drive, the productivity running on that hamster wheel. Mm. And then that would be the cocaine part of the speedball. And then the, mm. the downer, the heroin or the depressant would be the, the alcohol that I then began to more and more progressively use through the course of my doctoral program and then into um, my early career as an assistant professor would be what would balance it down and, and calm, calm things down and, and make running on that hamster wheel possible. And wow. it took me a long time to really begin. You know, I, I left academia first, got sober about a year later. Um, and it took me, it was probably a good two years into my sobriety before I really started to untangle the work addiction piece and work through a lot of my resentment towards academia and just start to tease apart what was what. So when was it that you first thought, huh, I might've been work addicted too? I think it was when I started to realize that leaving academia didn't automatically solve the alcohol problem and that solving the alcohol problem didn't automatically solve my work identity issues, um, my work patterns. Um, I was, you know, I left academia and began working as a, as a consultant, um, training other PhDs and physicians how to get, um, be successful with grant funding from NIH or NSF or USDA. And the, the work patterns and, and the identity struggles um, were definitely diminishing and healing, but were still there. And so it has really only been in the last two years that I've started to untangle that and, and tease that apart. I think identifying towards the, towards the end of my time in academia, I was coming off of a a special career development award where my salary had been covered for 
five years by the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs uh, to do research in a, in a particular area. And I knew I would be coming to a crossroads where I was going to have to fund 100% of my salary on soft money once that award was over. And when I looked at what the mosaic of funding and, and activities that was going to need to happen for me to be 100% funded, I started to feel really overwhelmed. So the model for PhDs in that particular situation was that part of your salary would come from being a PI on grants, some would come from being a co-investigator on grants, some would come from teaching, some would come through perhaps clinical service, some would come through um other service to the institution. And so about a year before that career development award ended, I was going around to the different parts of the medical center and the university where I had been doing service, for example, as a fellowship director or um, in terms of implementing substance use um, performance measures in the hospital and and basically trying to quantify how much salary support each one of those would be worth and really hitting a brick wall in terms of folks saying, um, you know, there's no money in the budget or the money's been reallocated here or there. or um, And I realized, I guess, that I wasn't going to be able to reach a monetary value, attach a monetary value to all of these things that I had been doing, these things that I had been investing in. And I was also worried that I wasn't going to be able to do, continue doing what I really enjoyed most, which was teaching and mentoring. And so around that time was when the company that I work for now was actually doing a presentation on campus. And I, I attended that. And for the first time, I had a sense of, wow, the favorite, my favorite part of what I do, teaching this two-semester grant writing course um, to PhDs and MDs in health sciences, this is actually like a whole separate job, and I I could do that. Um, and so the timing for me was was serendipitous because I realized that wow, I could carve out the part of my job that I really enjoy the most, and it could be its own thing. And um, I wouldn't have to constantly be jockeying and putting this salary coverage together for myself. So I think that was a turning point in leaving academia, but also realizing that I didn't have to continue running on that hamster wheel. Okay. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what it felt like to be on the hamster wheel. I mean, I, you really explained it really, um, in, in a very sort of intriguing way for me, this sort of upper and then using the alcohol as the downer to balance yourself down. And, um, I guess I, I want to hear more about like what that would look like. I want to ask about this sort of sense that everything that's not work is intruding on your life because that really resonates with me that is absolutely how I felt as an academic I want to hear about the sense of intrusion I also want to hear about how you sort of dismissed your family um, or and other things you cared about as well as how the alcohol felt when it um, when you used it to bring yourself down Oh, totally. Yeah, that's that's really a jam-packed um, 
response. Um, so I guess let me go back to what it felt like. It felt, and, and you know, I, I need to say now, having a couple of years perspective on this, I still have a really hard time figuring out what is self-imposed pressures and expectations and what were institutional pressures mm. and expectations. And those were really tangled for me. I used to think that it was all academia. Now I recognize that a hefty portion of that was also me. Um, so I felt under constant pressure from those dual sources. I also felt immense pressure being a PhD in a predominantly MD world. I felt a lot of pressure to perform, perform better. Um, I, I am a nurse also uh, by training, but I have not practiced clinically for quite some time. So I didn't have clinical responsibilities to offset um, some of that salary coverage. So I felt a lot of pressure to be good. I felt a lot of pressure to bring in dollars that were going to cover my salary and a lot of pressure to demonstrate my worth in multiple ways. So not just through publications and grants, but through service to the VA hospital that I was at, again, through these um, implementation of these hospital accreditation measures that were related to substance use. I wanted to be excellent in teaching. And a lot of that was just wanting to be excellent, but a lot of it was also trying to sow seeds and build relationships because I knew after this five-year award was over, I was going to need to justify my existence um, and, and have multiple funding streams covering my salary. So it was all consuming for me. And I had lots of great relationships at work in terms of mentors and in terms of colleagues, but I really wasn't developing deep friendships, um, even with my staff who I really, really, um, respected and valued. I don't know that I always sent that message because I was so busy and kind of all business, you know, they would get together and have lunch together and I would just gobble something down at my, at my desk. Um, I would just be buzzing and on from, you know, eight to five straight with no breaks. Um, my mind would still be spinning with things that I needed to do and projects that I needed to do as I was driving home. And I would be recording things into my, my phone because I didn't want to lose the ideas. I mean, there was really this sort of manic element to it. And then I would get home and just be exhausted and talk incessantly to my husband, um, who's a clinician, um, you know, about what happened at work. And then we'd be making dinner and my children would be coming in and wanting attention and I would be giving it to them, but distracted, giving it to them, but feeling encroached upon. Um, I'd often be checking email all night long, waking up in the middle of the night and checking email and not being able to sleep at 3 a.m. And so getting up and saying, well, at least I'll start taking care of email or I'll start editing something. So it really was this obsessive lifestyle where I didn't have hobbies. I didn't have, um, I didn't have close female friends. 
Um, I had my sister and uh, another woman that I was close with during my doctoral program and early faculty position, but I just didn't have that well-balanced life. And so I think alcohol came into the picture in this increasingly progressive way because it was what would help me unwind from that being keyed up and, and that buzz when I walked in the door. And it also just helped me manage the feelings of overwhelm, the feelings of inadequacy as a faculty member, as a mother, uh, manage the guilt that I was feeling, manage the shame that I was feeling. And I guess over time, it just started increasing from one or two glasses of wine to half a bottle, to a full bottle, to feeling like, oh, it helps me sleep. It then got to the point where I would, um, you know, start to feel lousy in the morning and say, okay, I'm not going to buy a bottle of wine on the way home. And then by 2.30 in the afternoon, starting to have cravings and coming up with some reason why it was going to be okay to buy a bottle of wine on my way home. Um, and starting to be aware of how many bottles of wine were in the recycling bin, um, starting to feel guilty about how much I was drinking, um, drinking, you know, we had random, I don't know, mixers and, and vodka and whatnot um, in the house at that time. And then I started switching over and drinking a little bit of vodka so that my husband wouldn't notice how much wine I was drinking and starting to feel like it was out of control. Like everything was out of control. The drinking was out of control. The guilt was out of control. The, the work stuff was out of control. And being an addiction researcher who specialized in early alcohol uh, intervention, just saying, oh, this doesn't apply to me. I mean, the denial being so thick um, and just for a while saying, oh, I've got it under control. No, it's fine. And until it really wasn't. And. Um, wow. I guess is, is that answering your question? Is that capturing the different dimensions you were it asking about? That's exactly what I was asking about. I just wanted to, I, I kind of wanted to feel the sort of moment to moment life you were experiencing at that time. And um, I felt it. And I would say that I, I can relate. Um, I, I didn't have the same kind of pressure you did in terms of you know, justifying your, your existence and, and getting the, the, the funding from various places at the institution and, and beyond. But I, I felt that same sense of my kid is such an intrusion. Like my mom is an intrusion. My friends are an intrusion. My yeah. husband is an intrusion. Like, Oh, just get out of my space. And that I, and I kid, and I really relate to the to the not being able to have like deep relationships at work because you're, you're too busy. And I was somebody who would come in and be like, nice, but I would always be paranoid that somebody would want to talk to me longer than yes. I wanted to. Oh, totally. Yes, absolutely. Hey, how's it going? And then you, you just sort of slink into your office and close the door as fast as you can. 
Yeah, totally. And I remember seeing, um, you know, there was an episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm where Larry David was talking about the the annoying stop and chat and people, <laughs> you know, sidling up to your desk or pulling you over in the store and kind of getting cornered. And every single interaction felt like that to me. Yep. Um, like I just needed to get back to work. I needed to, um, yeah, that was pleasant and, and all that. But I, inside I was feeling like, I just, I have so much work to do. I have to go. I can't, I can't do the stop and chat. So what would it have been for you to intervene on that? Like what, what would have been effective at that time? What, what did you actually need as you look back on that, you know, in retrospect? Um, what could have gotten you to a place where you wouldn't have gone down the alcohol road? You know, I don't know. That's a really great question. I I don't know because, you know, again, as I've been in sobriety, I I can look at the multiple factors that were stacked here. I mean, addiction runs in my family as well. So I was absolutely have absolutely been genetically primed uh, for this as well. It, it's hard to know. I'm, I can say though, that for me, I, I wasn't one of those folks that started drinking at an early age and, you know, got progressively worse. My drinking really took off when I became a mother. I was in grad school. I had both my kids in grad school um, during that six year period. And there were a couple other women doing the same thing. And so it just sort of seemed nutty, but manageable. Um, and that I think is a really vulnerable point for a lot of women is that, that shift into motherhood or that early career development period and motherhood. So it's hard for me to know what cultural things or um, other kinds of interventions might have been helpful. I think, you know, I was in an R1 institution, so the pressures there were were real. Um, I think it would have been helpful for me if there had been a culture that felt a little bit safer to disclose um, these types of things, these types of issues, whether they were women's issues or just faculty issues or both. If there had been a forum where I could have had what I was feeling normalized beyond just the complaining, I think that I did find folks where it was sort of safe to vent with or safe to complain with about, about the machine or about the culture. But aside from I guess I felt like there were lots of classes and seminars and faculty development workshops being offered, especially for junior faculty around more effective time management, more effective stress management, work-life balance, um, how to be more productive as a writer. And I, for a long time, thought that that's what I needed. Like, I just need to work smarter. I need to work more efficiently, and then I won't feel so overwhelmed. Um, or I just need to implement these whatever, relaxation tips, and then everything was going to be fine. And for me, it was so <laughs> much deeper than that. It was really about this identity stuff and just this weird symbiosis or synergy because between my internal processes and the academic culture and an R1 institution that I was in, I mean, they fed off of each other. It was, it's, um, 
you know, it's the perfect place for perfectionistic, high achieving, hardworking, ambitious folks. So I guess I want to talk about the mother piece. And, you know, you said earlier in our conversation that um, addiction, and was it alcohol addiction specifically, is increasing in, in women and mothers? Is yes. That, did I get that right? Okay. Yes. And then I, and then what you said about your drinking really took off when you became a mom and that happened, um, and, and the drinking piece didn't happen to me, but the, the over stress happened to me. And, and I, cause it's like, I didn't have my own space and my own time and my own anything. It was like, I, I, I just couldn't find space for me and it became very, very, very anxiety provoking. And so I want to talk about the mother piece. What would you say about um, about why addiction is increasing in moms and just anything else you could offer around that? Those are great questions too. I think I could totally relate to what you just said about not feeling like I had space for me anymore between work and what I thought was expected of me there or what was actually expected of me there as well. And then at home, what was expected of me and what I thought was expected of me. I think too, you know, we, I'm, I'm originally from Baltimore and we relocated to, to Pittsburgh where I live now and we didn't have family here. And so I didn't have that network of family to help and, and normalize what I was going through. And aside from that one friend that was in the doctor program with me, I also just didn't have time or didn't think I had time for female friendships in, in the neighborhood. And so I didn't have this larger network of women to, or other people in general, just to really validate that all of what I was feeling was, was normal as a new mother. And so I think that that's one of the things that's feeding the increase um, in alcohol use um, among women, but it, it's multifaceted. You know, we all came of age um, it, at the time when, you know, the marketing of alcohol changed over. It changed over from, um, you know, quote unquote, hard liquor and beer into all of the, the fruity drinks and the Zimas and the, these drinks that were specifically being marketed to women, skinny girl products, that sort of thing. Um, that's a part of the influence. Um, it's also that alcohol has been incredibly marketed to mothers and women as a way to cope with parenting. Um, it's sort of analogous to the Valium being mother's little helper. Um, you know, there are all the memes and jokes about mommy juice and mommy needs her wine and, um, you know, mommy drinks because you cry and all of those sorts of things that are just floating around in social media and other spaces that have only recently really been, been called out. If you go into a women's gift, you go into a gift store, all of the products, you know, geared towards women are, oh, it's wine o'clock and, yeah. Funny glasses and magnets and, and all of that sort of thing. So I think there are absolutely these cultural influences. I also think that there are um, the ongoing pressures that we know about for women of um, as women achieve more career success in the workplace, they're still coming home to a second shift. We have a variety of um, 
marital situations or um, you know gender role expectations, um, some of which are have a, a more equitable division of labor, some of which don't. So I think it's a combination of cultural forces and marketing, and then just ongoing pressure for women to feel like. Uh, I don't know. I was, I'm a child of the eighties where I just got those messages that you can do everything, you can do anything and you can do everything and to be good at all of it. Um, it wasn't that you had to choose children or a career. You can have both and there's a way to do it. And I just don't think I ever had a really good reality check on what that looked like or the, the fact that it really does, at least for me, take a village these days. Okay, that's great. So I want to ask ask you to talk about that as it relates to academics. Um, what what do you know in terms of personal stories or research, anything um, around addiction and um, women academics in particular? There is virtually nothing. Um, mm. There is. It's interesting, and I've been digging into this. I've been digging into this literature for a while now. Um, in the formal literature, there's been nothing on alcohol use in academia since the late '80s, um, where there were a handful of psychologists who really started shining the light on alcohol addiction in academia, in, in professors, psychology professors in particular. Since then, there has been almost nothing. Um, we see a little bit of discussion of addiction in like the EAP, the, the employee um, you know, assistance realm. Um, we see a little bit on workaholism, a little bit on burnout, a little bit on mental health, but connecting the dots between addiction of any type in academia has really only appeared recently in or what I refer to as the gray literature online, which are things like um, forums like Medium, Slate. Um, there was an article in 2002 in the Chronicles of um, Higher Education that was written by an anonymous English professor about addiction in academia. But I think I've collected all of it. And I can tell you that there's virtually nothing in the formal literature. And then in this gray literature, it's probably around 20 or 25 articles. Um, there are a couple Reddit threads. So people are starting to talk about it. But as I think I said earlier, I just feel like it's the last taboo. It's the last thing that we, um, we just don't want to touch. It's the most stigmatized or the most shameful. Okay. And did you see um, any signs of addiction around you when you were in academia? Um, not in you, um, but in those around you. Since you were a researcher and, <laughs> and you thought about those things, I wonder if you, you know, would go to uh, meetings regularly with somebody and be like, geez, you know, it looks like an addiction problem. Do you, were you able to do that or did you ever see that? Is that a weird question? Is that a dumb question? I no, it's not a weird question because I do think that, um, you know, certain parts of academia are very alcohol heavy in terms of, you know, our conferences or the way that we socialize or the way that people are 
recruited and, and you know, wined and dined when they're, they're being recruited. And I think that varies by region or institution or discipline. But I do think that that's also a part of academic culture, as is, you know, when we think about the, um, you know, there are certain associations between, um, you know, like be, being literary and, um, and drinking or certain associations between like having arrived and, and being a part of the, the in crowd or the, the intelligentsia, um, the good life. And that, you know, a drink drinking is what that looks like once you've reached a certain level. I don't know that I really had enough of a keen eye looking for addiction in others. Um, I think that when I was at conferences, there was definitely drinking and I was part of a group that was staying late at the bar, socializing, networking and, and drinking. Um, so I think that I just saw it all as normal, that this is just part of what academia is. This is part of what's uh, being part of the in crowd at the conference. Um, whether it was walking around the poster session or whether it was, you know, the after party at the bar. Um, I was just a part of that scene and I, I think I thought it was normal. So I wasn't really noticing whether or not other people had a problem because I think that probably would have made me reflect on, well, if they have a problem and I'm hanging out with them <laughs> drinking just as much, that probably means I have a problem too. And so I think I just mentally couldn't go there for a long time. Oh, gosh, that totally makes sense to me. Absolutely. And so I'm thinking about this uh, TED Talk you were talking about um, and the definition as sort of emotional outsourcing. And I I want to ask you about what kind of emotions you were managing or outsourcing that you then needed to learn how to manage and what that journey was like? That's a great question too. I, I was managing every emotion that way. Um, big stuff, small stuff, present stuff, stuff from the past, from, from a difficult childhood. It was all of it. It was emotions like feeling overwhelmed, feeling afraid, feeling inadequate, feeling disappointed, feeling angry, feeling nervous. Um, All of that, every possible negative emotion was being managed that way. Old grief, um, all of it. And I think that 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 has been, you know, really for me what the recovery or what the, the sobriety journey has been about. So putting down the substance, again, whether that's a cookie or a glass of wine or a slot machine or whatever, that's just the physical um, arresting, so to speak. That's, that's putting the plug in the jug, so to speak, or that's, that's stopping the anesthesia. That's stopping the numbing. And then you're left with whatever's, um, whatever's there, whatever was being numbed out, whether it's numbing. I think it's Bernie Brown that says you can't selectively numb. So you're numbing out the bad stuff, but you're also numbing out the joy and the spontaneity and the creativity and all the good stuff too. And so all of that has to resurface in, recovery. And for me, I started in, um, I started in, in AA in the 12 step program. And while it's not 
what, while I eventually developed a different toolkit and um, left that community, it was absolutely a wonderful place for me to land. It gave me an instant community of other sober women. It gave me a program to follow. It gave me some structure and language and a framework and just something to step into. And, um, you know, a lot of people, I think, have misconceptions about AA that, you know, you're just sitting in this chair and you magically, by listening to other people's stories, you magically heal uh, yourself and and go through recovery and, and don't drink again. And that's part of the picture, but the bulk of the program is really working these 12 steps with a sponsor who's like a coach um, and engaging with other sober people in the program. And for me, that's where the healing and growth actually takes place is, is through the working the 12 steps on your own or work with your sponsor. Um, and so that was the foundation for me starting to be able to as I say, live life on life's terms and manage, um, manage my life without an anesthetic. And it's interesting to me because as I listen to your story, I, I'm thinking a lot about connecting to other people and how important that is because you talked about this sort of culture where we couldn't disclose anything in academia. And then you've talked about, you know, alcohol being on the increase um, among women and mothers and how some of that has to do with having little connection to each other. And now here we are talking about how AA meetings were like a nice place to land and they were a nice place to land, not 100% just because of the connection, but it sounds like the connection was a really big piece of it. And so I'm thinking about that connection piece being absent when, when we all start to spin out of control and when addiction takes hold in whatever form. I'm wondering how interesting it is that academia keeps us in these silos, keeps us so isolated when what we really need is connection because it's so unhealthy not to have the connection. What are your thoughts? I would say that's absolutely true. I think that a lot of other folks conceptualize addiction, um, the root of addiction being uh, isolation and, and shame, and that we, you know, we grieve in community, we heal in community, and that those social connections and opportunities to be authentic and honest and vulnerable are really where we find our sustenance and paradoxically, you know, find ourselves through connection to other people. And for me, at least in the climate that I was in, there was no time for those kinds of connections. It was all about productivity. And I think we all felt that to varying degrees. And so a lot of those relationships for me just weren't just weren't a priority. And I didn't see a lot of, didn't experience a lot of forums for really digging deep into these, these sorts of issues. Um, Cause I, it's like the one-off workshop on work-life balance or the one-off workshop on time management. It's the, Oh, let's go to lunch right now, but I can't cause I'm busy at the moment. Right. Like it, it, it's, you're right. It's just such a culture of disconnection. 
And I think that it also picks up on on shame, this idea that if you can't just implement these three easy time management strategies or can't manage to also now fit in exercise and some meditation and all of this, then you're just a failure who can't cope, who can't hack it. And so that I think is a pervasive fear as well, is that if I'm not enjoying this and I'm feeling overwhelmed after a certain point, you know, if I'm, if I'm using the tools that are being offered and they're not helpful, then maybe I really am not cut out for this, or maybe, um, I'm not as bright or as, um, important as I thought. I know we're about out of time, but I want you to talk a little bit about your Facebook group called the bigger table. Tell us who it's for. Tell us why you started it, all the stuff. So it's brand new. Um, Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to describe a little bit. It's designed for sober women in academia. Um, If you identify as a woman, if you identify as a former or current academic, you're welcome. You're welcome if you identify as sober, in recovery, a non-drinker, and also if you identify as sober curious, if you're just starting to think, oh, I might want to change my relationship with alcohol. You're welcome as well. The goal is really to provide that safe space to, um, because I think that many women who who identify as sober academics um, may not have had some of the community that that I was just sort of talking about, um, whether they went a different route in terms of um, their recovery or, or treatment journey, they may not have had that community. And so I wanted to provide a forum that addresses this intersectionality of um, professional identity, academia, and an alcohol addiction. And to not only um, talk about the challenges, but to really celebrate all of the different paths to recovery or paths to sobriety. I want it to be an inspiring place where people can say there are lots of different ways to do this um, because I think addiction looks different in high functioning, high achieving women. We may not be having the same outward manifestations that um, that sort of folks who are in more traditional careers or or situations may have. You know, we're not necessarily going to have. Um, the, the consequences are going to look different, I guess is what I'm saying. And it may not be this portrayal of rock bottom, so to speak, that we all think is the prerequisite for change. And it's not. I, I didn't have financial consequences or job consequences or legal consequences. Um, absolutely. Internally, I was a wreck and I was having family consequences, but those external things weren't there. And so I want to dispel that myth and then also really showcase the different ways that women change their relationship with themselves, with alcohol and and with academia. That it doesn't mean you have to leave academia, that it doesn't mean you have to go to AA, it doesn't mean you have to go to 30-day rehab. There are lots of creative ways to to change those relationships. And I'm, I'm hoping that people can grab ideas for how to maintain their, um, their sobriety and, and celebrate their, their growth and change. Mm. 
so now I do have another question. I want to know what your continued recovery looks like now, because you said you landed in AA and then you found a different way. Um, so would you just talk about what you do on a daily basis to, to stay in a good place? Sure. I mean, that's, it's an evolving thing. So I, I got a lot out of, um, out of being in AA for about two years and I did go through and work all the steps and I was really held by a community of loving women and established some really fantastic friendships. Um, I'm part of a women's group now that meets on Sunday mornings. Um, and that is, it's really part of my foundation. Um, I also have a lot of sober friends in recovery, um, some of whom are in my neighborhood. And I just have those, those deep, those deep friendships um, where I can be authentic and, and be vulnerable now. A lot of it is, you know, it's non-sexy, non-Instagram worthy stuff. It's getting enough sleep. It's exercising every day. It's morning rituals like writing and prayer and meditation. It's um, it's it's self-care redefined. Because um, for me, it's not margaritas and manicures. It's um, it's having boundaries personal boundaries with other people, boundaries around how often I check email and not having it on my phone and those sort of things. And it's really, uh, it's weekly therapy. It's also, um, it's, it's been a real focus on learning to feel my feelings instead of analyze and talk about my feelings. That's been a really big one. And I'm still working on that because I can easily shift back into um, analysis mode, but it's, it's a mosaic of lots of different things, uh, books. And those are things I wouldn't have even been able to access as an overworked academic. Don't you think that's true? Oh, totally. Like I have to say now that I'm outside of that academic workday structure and, you know, even before COVID I worked from home, I worked from home. So I had so much autonomy over my time and I was able to go to a therapy appointment in the middle of the day, or I was able to go to an AA meeting, or I was able to go for a walk in my neighborhood with another woman. Um, I was able to be home when the bus arrived in the afternoon. And so I could start to feel better about being a present and engaged parent. And if I had still been in a traditional nine to five work setting with commute time on each side of that, I just don't think I would have had as much physical space or as much mental and emotional space to begin incorporating these things into my life. Amen. Okay. So very last thing you want to say, um, as we end this conversation and wrap up, I guess I would just want to put that message out there to other women in academia that it's, it's not just you. Um, it's not just you that feels overwhelmed and it's not just you who might be realizing that um, you need to revisit your relationship with alcohol. It's not just you who thinks they're completely intertwined and like, Oh my gosh, if I change one, I may have to change the other. And that just feels so incredibly overwhelming. Um, it would just be this sense that, it's not just you and that there's a place to connect with other women around this now. Um, other women who, who get it, 
on, in terms of multiple aspects of, of your life, not just maybe your drinking, but also your professional identity and your motherhood identity. Um, I think intellectually, I always knew that I wasn't alone, but emotionally it felt that way. And so now I'm just trying to bring this to the surface and I really appreciate the opportunity to talk and share my story. Oh my gosh. It is so my pleasure. I so appreciate you doing it. And um, I want to know if you're willing to talk to people, if they see themselves in this conversation and they just need sort of a first step to just chat, um, are you willing to connect with people in that way? Okay. And, and so how can we get in touch with you? So feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm there under Lauren Broyles and also feel free to check out our Facebook group. It's a private group. Um, there are membership questions for, for entry, but again, it's, it's very broad and welcoming in terms of if you identify as a sober or sober curious woman in, in academia currently or formerly, you're welcome. So please come check us out as well there. Oh, so good. Okay. Thank you so much, Lauren. Thank you, Danielle. Thanks for listening to Self-Compassionate Professor. Find me on LinkedIn at Danielle Delamar, on Twitter and Instagram at Danielle SC Prof, or schedule a free coaching consult at selfcompassionateprofessor.com. Be well. Be well.